welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community Eastside Gathering. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. We're going to continue in our journey in 1 Peter. If you got your Bible, pull it out. If you got your phone, go to BibleGateway.com and type in 1 Peter 1. And if you have need to look on with someone next to you, as we continue through this beautiful, amazing, yet challenging book in 1 Peter. Um, so we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 21. And I'm going to read, and then we're going to unpack the verse. <clears throat> verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with it with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Jesus Again, open our heart and eyes to hear and sense what you want to say to us today. Amen. Amen. Be holy because I am holy. That's uh, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 through 45. And this is what Peter, I think, is communicating to us. What does it mean to be holy? Um, People like... Dr. Albert Dudley, J. Vernon McGee, consider the book of Leviticus one of the most important um, of the Bible because it takes up this theme of holiness. Um, Holiness in Leviticus is mentioned over 87 times. And yet it's not just localized to Leviticus. Um, There's an overall theme of holiness that the Bible purports if you read the Bible from cover to cover. And what you realize is that when God took this lowly, marginalized, small in number group of people called Israel and and made them what they were, he had called them to be separate and distinct. He told them what they could eat and drink, what they could wear, who they could associate with, who they couldn't associate with, because God wanted to separate a people that would be holy unto him. So the question today is, I want to tackle the subject of holiness, but what does holiness truly look like? I've been in the game 30 years, and I've been, I've been told what holiness looks like from a lot of different streams and perspectives. Um, I, have, I have tried to be that kind of holy person, and if you're anything like me, Holiness is one thing that I struggle with. What does it mean to be holy? Um, I remember when I first got saved, uh, we, I was in an extremely legalistic shepherding movement that was heavy on discipleship, and everything was prescribed, and you did it because you wanted to live this holy life. And so we had men houses and girl houses. This was at Oregon State. You weren't allowed to date. You weren't even allowed to associate with the opposite sex except on Sunday. Yeah. You didn't drink. You didn't smoke. You wore your hair a certain way. You dressed a certain way. You walked through the church door and you were handed the holiness script. And because I had no kind of church upbringing, I came to Christ at 19 and I was this wild-eyed, starry-eyed idealist who, 
who was looking for any kind of cause or mission, the church gave me this holiness cause and mission to live distinct from most college students. And so I bought it hook, line, and sinker. And then after three and a half years of trying to live this lifestyle that I was absolutely and utterly incapable of living, I quit on Christianity. I quit on Christ. And I went my own way because I thought the standards were too high. And so that was my brand of Christianity. And then I moved up to Portland and I got plugged in to a church where holiness was defined culturally, that it looked like a particular culture. And unless you conform to that form or expression of Christianity, you weren't living a truly holy lifestyle. If you weren't voting a particular way, if you weren't dressing a particular way, if you weren't thinking about life and theology and politics a certain way, and you could not veer away from that. And then I came to the end of that. I didn't walk away from Christ, but I had a lot of fundamental questions about Christianity that I struggled with. And then one day, 1999, I went to go hear a buddy of mine preach. It was the second Sunday in October, and he invited me to come here. It was one of his first sermons that he was preaching in front of a church. So I was going there to support him, and he was going to speak on spiritual disciplines. And me wanting to, you know, you know, I was a pretty fairly disciplined guy. I'm an athlete. I get disciplined. He was going to give me a few little tricks to helping me enrich my spiritual life. And he preaches on the gospel and how it relates to spiritual disciplines. And it turned my life upside down. It turned what I thought holiness was upside down. And then I realized that the holiness separated from from the gospel is dangerous. Dangerous. And so this morning, I'm going to unpack that and what I mean by that. Now, what I don't want you to do is to be callous about holiness or see no need for holiness because If you don't see a need to change and to grow and develop and cultivate your relationship with Jesus, then you're not in touch with your heart. You're not in touch with your heart because every day we need to be growing. But we also need to be in tune with where our heart actually is. I remember reading in the scriptures where Peter is on a boat and they tell him to cast... Jesus tells the disciples to cast their fish or their nets on the other side of the boat, and they begin to catch so many fish that the, that the boat begins to sink. And while everybody's trying to capture these fish and keep them in the net, Peter falls on his face before Jesus and says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Now, I don't know about you, but I got Peter in that moment, because you would think here he had been walking with Jesus for probably two years now, you would think he felt pretty decent about his relationship with Jesus. And here he is falling flat on his face because he gets a revelation of the power and the beauty and majesty and holiness of Jesus. And he's like, man, I'm I'm not even fit to be in your presence. And I am convinced now that I'm 50 years old and I've been serving Jesus for about 30 years, I I don't wanna discourage you, but if you just get going in your journey, And you think when you get 20, 30, or 40 years into your faith, you're going to feel more holy? Now, (laughs) you ain't got the gospel. Because at 50, as I start approaching getting closer to eternity, (laughs) um, I realize how sinful and how evil and how dark I actually am. How many of you guys watch the National Geographic channel, Nat Geo? I do. I love Nat Geo. They used to actually have this show called Prison Break on it. Not that prison break. It was a show about people who actually broke out of prison. And there was this story. I remember watching this documentary on this couple named Gary and Jennifer Wyatt. And Gary was in prison for whatever reasons, I forget. And Jennifer actually happened to be the nurse, the prison nurse. 
and they fall in love. And you weren't supposed to have a relationship if you worked for the prison. You weren't allowed to have a, a relationship with a prisoner, but they had a relationship and they tried to keep it, uh, they tried to secret the relationship and the and word spread and warden, warden heard about it and Jennifer gets fired and, but they married nevertheless. And they planned this prison break, right? To get him out of prison so that they could live their love life and they do. They successfully. It's like Shawshank Redemption. I don't know if he chiseled a hole through the wall, but he broke out. And this happened in the South. So they break out. Now, you know, the warden and, and you know, everyone's after both of them now because she helped them get out of prison and they're on the run. And someone tips them off that they're in the next town over um, hiding out in a hotel room. And so the police and the warden, all of them, they converge on the, the, um, the hotel. Now, mind you, when they broke out of the prison, they killed a few prison guards to get out. And when they got out and they were in the town just over from the prison, they're hiding in this uh, hotel room. And the police catch wind of it and they show up there and they finally get them out. And one of the police officers said this when they apprehended them. He said this, in a nutshell, I thought that they would be these men and evil. Wait, in a nutshell, I thought they would be these mean and evil, cold-blooded killers. But they were not the monsters I imagined. They were just normal people like you and I. And I was like, that's so true. That when we think of evil, when we think of evilness, we don't realize that evilness lurks in in the most normal people like you and I. I mean, when you think about David, who was a man after God's own heart, David was an adulterer and a murderer. And the Bible's not propping David up to say, see, this is the steps you need to do to be a man or woman after God's own heart. What the Bible's trying to show us is, is that David, on the one hand, is a person that has a heart for God, which which is on his best day, and yet on his worst day, he's a cold-blooded killer. And if you don't understand that you have these two contradictions running inside of your own heart, then you are not in tune with your own heart. Moses, who liberates the children of Israel out of the hand of Pharaoh and Egypt, and that was about two million people. He saw miracles and signs and wonders, and yet God doesn't let him into the promised land because he struggles with anger. And he smites the rock when God told him not to smite the rock. And God gets ticked at him and says, you ain't getting into the promised land because you too moody and temperamental. (laughs) These are the patriarchs, the matriarchs, not as a way of being the example we try and prop them up to be. It's to show us that God uses people not because they're good and righteous and holy. God uses people because God is God. And he uses you in spite of yourself. You hear me this morning? So the question on the floor is three. What is holiness? Number one. Number two, what does a holy person look like? And last thing, how do I cultivate a heart for holiness? Those are the three points I want to unpack today. What is holiness? Second, what does a holy person look like? And third, how do I cultivate a heart for holiness? What is holiness? Look with me real quick in verse 13. Notice Notice what Peter says. He says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your heart on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at at his coming. Look at that first word, 
Therefore. Therefore. Now, most theologians say, what is therefore, therefore? It's to connect everything that Peter had just said. He's saying, this means what I'm about to tell you, what I'm about to show you is because of everything that I just got done talking to you about. And what is it that Peter got done talking to him about? Well, he had told them that they were, in verse 1, God's elect. He had said in verse 2 that they were chosen. He had also said in verse 2, their chosenness was contingent on God's foreknowledge, which means God didn't look down in eternity or in time and see that one day Donna would choose him and therefore he chooses her. No, foreknowledge is foreknowing. In other words, God set his affections on Donna and decided that he was going to open her heart and mind to who he was. And so what he's saying is, as he's, as he's working his way to what a holy person looks like, he says holiness starts as a position, meaning, meaning it's, it's a disposition. It's, it's you're holy because you're holy not because of what you do. You're holy because of what I've done. He's saying, I've chosen you. I elected you. I foreknew you. I sanctified you. I set you apart. And so when holiness starts in our life, it doesn't start with us. It starts with him. And that's where it begins. The basis of it is grounded not in what you do, but in what God has done. And that's where holiness starts. That's why Paul can write to the Corinthians church that was a mess, right? They fought over the gifts. They were getting drunk at the communion table. The rich people participated at the communion table and dang there ate up all the bread and, and wine before the poor could get off work and participate in it right? They worshiped certain leaders. They were divisive. They were faction. You name it. The Corinthian church was a mess. And Paul writes to this church and says to the holy ones in Corinth. Now, why in the world would he say to the holy ones in Corinth when their whole lifestyle is anything but that? Well, Paul is not talking about their practice of holiness. He's talking about their position of holiness. And unless you understand your position of holiness, then you're not going to understand holiness because if you reduce holiness down to action, if you ain't drinking, smoking, partying, you think you're pretty holy. But sin isn't an action. Sin is a condition. It's a lifestyle. It's your heart. And unless you understand sin from that perspective, that everything that you do is a mess. And you got problems. I remember when I was pastoring a well, give you a classic example just to help you understand this. You know, I was trying to push the envelope. I was, this is my first church I'd ever pastored. I got the gospel. I got tired of religiosity and I didn't give it. I just didn't. And I was going for it. This was in 2000. And the first thing we did was we did this thing called Havana Night. And this was for the men to invite their men friends to this outreach we were having. We rented out a cigar lounge, which was radical then, ain't that radical now. And we said, invite all your friends. We're going to have a night where we're going to talk about how you roll cigars, smoke cigars, and hang out and do our thing. Now, I was pretty radical, you know. Now everybody smokes and not everybody, but you know what I'm saying. I got a letter from a woman in the church who said, had a big problem with us doing a Havana night. Now, mind you, she went in on me about this. How could a pastor in a church support a Havana night? She was single and she was pregnant. While she sent me the scathing letter about a Havana night. Did you hear? I said that right. She was single pregnant and mad at me for having a Havana night. She and I got together and had a very good, healthy, grace-filled, civil conversation. But I had realized that as we began to talk about 
the event, I realized that what she had done was reduce sin down to action. All right, I fell morally, I got pregnant, but I'm not sinning anymore, I'm pretty holy, so I have the right to speak into your life. And I had to sit her down and explain that holiness is far deeper than the actions we commit. The actions are just symptomatic of the condition of our own heart. And this is why from the top of my head to the very soles of my feet, my, 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 look, my best tears of repentance are still staying with sin. And that's why I desperately need Jesus Christ into my life. When I understand fundamentally what holiness is, I realize that it starts with who I am in Christ. I am simul justice at peccator. That's what Martin Luther said. I am simultaneously just and sinful at the same time. In and of myself, I'm sinful. But in Christ, I'm a new creation, shaped and formed in his image. And when God looks at me, he looks at me through the lens of his son. And that is good news. And unless you understand who you are positionally, you will always be frustrated practically because you'll never measure up. You'll never feel right. You'll always be, you'll always feel like you need to get your life right and on track with Jesus. And holiness starts first and foremost, not with what I do, but what he's done. And it's out of what he's done that gives me the worship and freedom and joy and liberty to own up to all my foibles, that I'm a person of wonder and woe, that I'm a living contradiction, that I can let my hair down and breathe and be honest about who I am in the moment. And it's not that I accept who I am, but this is who I am at this period of my life. And I can be okay and realize that I am growing from glory to glory because I'm being shaped and fashioned into his image. And that is good news. You see, what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians when he talks about be holy for I am holy. The assumption is you're holy. Now live out the holiness you have. Because positionally in Christ, God looks at you through his righteousness. That is good news. Now work out what he's worked in. So holiness is a position before it starts as a practice. And that's not to negate a practice, but it's out of that position that we practice. Number two, what is holiness? So if holiness is a position, holiness is also an orientation. It says, for it is written, be holy, for I am holy. The word holy in Hebrew comes from the word kodesh, which means to set apart or to be marked off. The English translation, I'm sorry, the, the, uh, the Greek translation is halag, which means to be whole. So it has a different nuance. It means to be whole. It's just to be holistic about your relationship with God. That's why when the teachers of the law came to Jesus and said, you know, what's the most important law? What did Jesus say? Most important love is law is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What is he saying? That holiness is just not setting aside certain parts of your life. I'm moral here. I'm moral there. I'm gonna stop doing this. I'm not gonna drink this. I'm gonna dress it. No, he's talking about your whole life. Like there's a renovation that there's an orientation. That happens in your mind, your body, your soul. Every aspect of your life is now orientated to something different. And for the Christian, it's Jesus. And that's what holiness looks like, right? When we talk about holiness or sanctification, we're not a stoic, right, who denies their, they deny, right, their human desires, Right. And I know Christians who are like that. Right. They're not in touch with their human desires. So they try and deny them. Right. Nor are we like the Epicureans who say, well, you just need to give in to them. You need to concede to them, not deny them. The beauty of the gospel to Christian is, is that if 
Holiness is a renovation. We, 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 um, we don't deny them. We don't concede to them. We reorientate them. In other words, my whole life should be centered on Jesus. And when it's centered on Jesus, all the stuff that I tried to replace Jesus with begins to go away. That's why when you look at the Ten Commandments, what are the Ten Commandments? The first two commandments are what? What's the first one? Lord, the Lord thy God. What's the second one? And have no other gods before me. Now, I love the way Tim Keller put it. He said, if you do the first two commandments, you're going to keep the other eight. But it's impossible to keep the other eight without doing the first two commandments. So he's not saying three through eight or three through ten, this is what you need to do. He's saying, look, if you do one and two, then three through eight is just natural. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying as he pushes it into the New Testament. He's saying, essentially, if you love the Lord thy God, if your whole life is orientated toward him, the issues that you are dealing with in your life just naturally go away. If you love something, you're not going to stand for anything that gets in the way of that love. But if you don't love it, then everything you try and do to sustain it becomes mechanical. It's like trying to bend metal without heat. You ever tried to bend metal without heat? You break the metal. But if you have heat, it's easy to bend metal. That's the same. This is what Jesus is saying. If your life and heart and your mind is orientated toward Jesus, right? If you've been ignited, right? If your heart has been heated up with who he is, your character is easy to change. You're pliable. You're adjustable because your heart has been heated, enriched by the gospel. But if it isn't, and you've got this cold, dead form of holiness, me talking to you about not doing this or that is, get, will give you some kind of visceral reaction. And so holiness is a position, and holiness is a orientation. So here's the question. What does a holy person look like? Look with me in verse 13. It says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Now, in the New King James Version, it says this, therefore, prepare your mind for action. Be self-controlled. Here it says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. So a holy person is a sober person. That's what a holy person looks like. What does it mean to be sober? Well, think about sobriety for a second. Sobriety means you no longer are under the influence of a foreign substance. That's what sobriety is. To be sober means you're alert and totally in touch with reality. A drunk person gets drunk to escape reality. A sober person is in tune with reality. That's why the Bible says be sober. That's what a holy person is. He's a sober, she's a sober person. Now, I don't know about you, but we live in a world of fantasy, right? It doesn't teach you how to be sober. Right? Like you watch a James Bond flick and all the James Bond movies that we've seen, I mean, all the James Bond women that we've seen James Bond be with. But what the movies don't tell you is James Bond in a clinic getting tested for a sexually transmitted disease. I talk to kids all the time that are heavy into hip hop, and there's pieces of hip hop that are absolutely horrible that objectify women, that, that exalt a lifestyle that is hazardous to your health. But what you don't see is the hazardous results of that kind of lifestyle. And so kids get caught up because they haven't been sober. The beauty of the Christian life is, and what it means to be holy, is to live sober, to see life for what it actually is. In fact, um, when you look at uh, 
this verse, in the King James Version, it says, gird up the loins of your mind. It doesn't just say, therefore, with minds that are alert. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. In the Greek and Roman world, men and women wore long robes. So when they had to do something labor, like had to do some things that were labor intensive, uh, they'd keep the robes from getting in their way. They would take it and put it through the girder. The girder was the belt. That way their arms and legs would be free. And what Peter is trying to say is, is, is like, like the girder of a belt, right? That the, the robe would be pushed through. Um, the, the, the whole ideal for the Christian is this, is being able in your sobriety to see through certain things. And that's what it means to be a holy person, being able to see through certain things, to see it for what it is. For you single people, right? You might be in a relationship and you know it's not healthy for you. There's that saying, and I don't know who says it, but I've heard it a million times. When somebody shows you who they are, believe them. Don't try and fix them. Don't try and change them. That's who they are. See, that's what the Bible purports. Like, knowledge is acquiring information. Knowledge is knowing how, or wisdom is knowing how to apply that. Realizing the consequences if you make these certain decisions. And I guarantee you in life, you are going to have to learn how to navigate things. And most people live in the moment. They don't think about the consequences. They don't see the long-term effects it'll have on their life. They don't see through it. They're not sober about it. And the beauty of the Christian life and the beauty of living a holy life means that you are a person that's sober, that you're not looking at the situation and caving into it. You see how the situation can create havoc in your life if you choose to succumb to it. And so a holy person is a sober person. But not only are we a sober person, a holy person is a transformed person. Look with me in verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Notice it didn't say, as obedient children, you don't have evil desires. It says, as obedient children, do not conform to those evil desires. How many of you struggle with evil desires? We all got them. It says we're not being conformed to them, but they're there. We don't have to deny them. We don't have to be dishonest, I mean, dishonest about them or disingenuous about them. They're there. But the challenge here is, is that we're no longer living according to the patterns of those evil desires. They're not shaping our life. They don't have the final say. Yes, they're present. I don't know about you, but I'm constantly aware of areas of my life that I, I, that I got to bring continually to Jesus. Let me give you an example. Give you a couple examples. All of my dad, I mean, all of my, my dad, all of my uncles, They were a mess. <laughs> Everybody, like, I grew up in a neighborhood where nobody had a dad around. Everybody had a single mom. My dad is on his fourth marriage. My mom never remarried because she never recovered from her marriage with my dad. And my mom was his first marriage. I've often said that my mom, you know, didn't know how to mother us because she lost her mom when she was eight. And so she wasn't mother, so she couldn't properly mother. All the, all the guys in my neighborhood were playboys. I never grew up knowing what a, what a healthy marriage or family looked like. It wasn't until I got saved and got into church that I started seeing families. I remember sitting there like this. No, 
They can't. I remember Robert and Don, Donna Jameson, the first married couple that reached out to me and I was single. I was like 23 years old at the time. And they would invite me over to their house every weekend and I would just sleep on their couch. And they had been married for 18 years at that point. And I remember sitting there with Robert, say, looking at him with these little beady eyes saying, 18 years? Serious? How? Made no sense to me at all. And so there's this thing in me growing up and even as an adult that always has this present fear that I'm going to be like my dad. The other shoe's going to drop. It hasn't. I've been married 20 years. I've been a faithful dad and husband. But growing up as a kid, that's how relationships were framed. And so it is always present in my life. It is something that I continually have to bring to the cross every day. What kind of dad are you going to be? What kind of husband are you going to be? How are you going to father your kids? How are you going to be to your wife? That's something that's present every day in my life. The beauty is, is that I am being conformed by something much far more beautiful, Jesus. And so, and so a holy person is a transformed person. I don't have to give or succumb to the evil things that are present in my life that want to dominate me. So how do I cultivate this? Read with me 17 through 21. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your life as strange wait, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life and handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ a land without blemish or defect. He has chosen before the creation of the world what was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him and so your faith and hope are in God. So, how do I cultivate a heart of holiness? Notice what Peter does. He, he, he puts two lives together. And he says, you choose. He says, either a strange life or an ordinary life. Which one do you want? Now, a strange life, look with me right here. It says in verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. He says, a strange life is an accountable life. A strange life is a dangerous life. It's an accountable life. That means somebody's going to take up claims in your life. You're you're accountable to God. It says, since you call on the Father who judges each man's work impartially. This is not a judgment of eternity, heaven or hell, but it's what do you do with what God gave you? That you... You perform before the audience of one. Are you willing to have a life that someone has a stake in? Are you willing to be accountable to God? Are you willing to allow God to Lord be the Lord over your life? And I know living in Portland, we don't like accountability. We don't like anybody to tell us what to do. We don't want anyone to take claim, have claims in our life. And, and this is a strange life that you have to submit to a God. And if you've ever read the Bible, there's some things in there that's hard to submit to. God is loving and angry. God is gracious, but God is a holy God. There's parts of the Bible that are extremely disturbing. 
And I know we want to get rid of some of the rough, hard edges of who God is to tame him, but this God is wild and mysterious. And we don't want that kind of God telling us what to do. And so we try and chop him down to our own size. To live a strange life is to say, I don't understand all of the Bible, and some of this stuff don't make sense, but I submit to it. How many of you guys remember the Stepford Wives? Remember when all those husbands put a chip in their wives' brain so that they control them? And then they realized that, that while they controlled them, they couldn't have any kind of intimacy because you can't have intimacy with a robot. Right? Intimacy has to have some volition, and they took all the volition out of it. And this is what we do oftentimes in our relationship with God. We put a chip in our God's brain, and we make him into our own image and tell him what to do. And the problem is with that kind of God that can't challenge you, who can't step to you, that can't demand from you, isn't the God at all. You can't have intimacy with that. That's just a cardboard box, right? Made in your own image. A strange life is an accountable life. You've got to submit to somebody. He says, because, this, the, because of the ordinary life, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from this empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. Do you hear what Peter is saying here? A strange life isn't just an accountable life. A strange life is a redeemed life. He says in verse 18 again, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from this empty way of life. Right? There's the strange life and there's the empty life. But make no mistakes about it. You're trying to find redemption in either. Either you're trying to redeem yourself through this empty way of life, and that empty way of life could be your academic degrees. It could be the money you have. It could be living in Portland, right, and being cool and weird. We do a lot of things to try and redeem ourselves, to prove to ourselves that we truly matter. A strange life is a life that's not put all of its hopes and dreams and aspirations, its identity and significance in this life that will perish. A strange life is a redeemed life. It's looking to Jesus. You want to cultivate a heart of holiness? Where where do you put all your significance and self-worth into? Things that are going to perish or in Christ? Lastly, a strange life is a believing life. It says in verse 21, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. A strange life is a believing life. And what did they believe in? They believed in a God that resurrected the dead. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because you got to remember these people are going through persecution. They had lost everything. And now they had to believe that, that there were that life was bigger than this one life. Can you imagine after the Atlantic slave trade being oppressed here in this country? Can you imagine dying on a slave plantation and believe in Jesus? That the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, but it's a justice you ain't never going to see in your lifetime? Where is the hope in that? The hope is the resurrection. Some of you have lost children and loved ones and things have not gone out the way you gone the way you've hoped. Where is our hope? It may never come around this side of eternity. 
But do, what do you believe about the resurrection? Do you believe you serve a God that is one of justice? That every wrong will be made right? That every one of our lives will be made whole? And it may not happen in this life? This is what I love about the Bible. It's realistic. These folks' lives may have never turned around. And yet, they did not put their hope in this life. They believed in the life to come. A strange life is to look at your circumstances, and they may look hard, and be willing to believe God in it because your coworkers don't understand why you okay with what you're going through. That's strange. <laughs> to live in the gospel means you live this peculiar life that don't make sense to a lot of people. Let me give you an example. When I'm around the city, before we started this church, this campus, as a black person in a predominantly white church, many people in a black community say, why are you there? That's strange. Why aren't you at a black church that speaks to you culturally? Why aren't you around your people? That's what it says. Why are you going to go there and commit cultural suicide? Well, the kingdom of God is upside down. Why would you live in this neighborhood? Why would you interact with someone culturally different than yourself? Why would we try and pull off this multicultural church when we know it's going to create all kinds of problems around preaching and music and community and doing life together? Why? Because the Christian life we believe is a strange life. It doesn't make sense. Sometimes it doesn't even make sense to us. But it makes complete sense to God. Now, the one thing I try and instill to my kids when I have to discipline them is to help them understand this temporary pain in your life is going to save you a lifetime of headache. And I know it don't make sense. I know this is strange how me taking this belt to your butts is going to help you later on in life. But guess what? When I look back, the only people I remember in my life at 50 were the people that stood up to me. The people that told me no. Those are the people I remember. The Christian life, the gospel calls us into this strange life. even strange to us. And the beauty of it is this. The one piece I love about diversity, because I'm called to this. I've been in it 30 years. Sometimes it's strange to your own emotions. Don't have to make sense. You just got to hang in there until it does. You ever try to teach someone new habits? I'm a basketball coach. I try in the first day of practice, I'm teaching kids who only shoot layups and shots with their left or right hand to now shoot it with their opposite hand, their uncomfortable hand, and they feel horrible. They're mad. They want to go back to what's comfortable. It takes us almost a whole season for them to go, ah, I get it. But they got to live in that uncomfortableness until it becomes comfortable. That's how new habits are formed. That's how new disciplines are formed. That's how new perspectives are formed. That's how diversity, it's not, hey man, we're like, like, I know we're different, but this, you know, we're connected and there shouldn't be any issues. Nonsense. 
You're going to feel uncomfortable. Everybody. For a while. Until it feels comfortable. And when it feels comfortable, it is the most beautiful thing you have ever experienced. I love who I am culturally. Because I'm able to connect in so many different cultures and yet retain who I am in the process. It's taken me 30 years to get here. But I got here. And I'm thankful that I got here. You want to get here. God's trying to get you somewhere. He's taking what you're going through, and he, he says, I know it's strange, to you. it's strange to you mentally, it's strange to you emotionally. Hang in there. Because it's going to make sense in due time. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. Eating this bread and eating and drinking this from this cup is strange. And doing it in remembrance of you is weird to the untrained eye. But for us who are being transformed from glory to glory, we understand that it is a representation of how you redeemed and transformed us. And so today, as we come and partake of the communion table, may you help us understand that our holiness positionally is in you, that we come to this table understanding that our righteousness has been earned by by the cross, by what you did at the cross. And so we rest in that today. May our life be orientated toward you. May we be transformed by the power of your spirit. May we not lean in on our own understanding. But may we get your wisdom and your perspective. So as we come to the communion table, help us to live this strange life. In Jesus' name. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at idceastside.com. Thanks for listening.